listening to Women's Waves, a podcast by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. My name is Florence Bellepage. Thanks for listening. On this episode, Dominique Christina. She is an award-winning poet, author, educator, and activist. She holds Poetry Slam titles, including U.S. National Poetry Slam Champion and Women of the World Slam Champion. Her work is greatly influenced by her family's legacy in the civil rights movement and by the idea that words makes worlds. This podcast is an excerpt from Dominique's 2018 workshop at Vancouver Rape Relief's event for the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. Viewing language as an agent for change, Dominique explores etymology and the ways in which meaning and definition are often confused. She connects language and its usage and misuse to ideologies and institutions because understanding language is a step towards understanding the world. Okay, so um, this is kind of my favorite thing to talk about. We're going to be having... a deliberate conversation about language and words and etymology and what that has to do with activism and how you perform from that and how institutions set themselves up via the language that they ascribe to themselves and how agenda-laced words are. So um, I, I, this is sort of a, almost a stock lecture for me at this point, because it was really the thing that changed my trajectory. Um, I was writing, I, I fancied myself a poet, still wasn't performing out loud, but knew what my voice was and knew it was urgent. Still felt very personal, very private, and very singular, and I had no intention of sharing it at any point with anyone I expected to die and then my great-grandchildren would find this trunk <laughs> under my bed with all these poems and be like, oh, shit, you know, grandmama was a poet, you know? <laughs> Emily Dickinson shit. I was really, that was going to be the, the path. Um, I was mother to three of my four children and they were young and I was at home with them and the news was on and Prince Harry was visiting the States. And I didn't care. I mean, I wasn't interested. I wasn't even looking at the television, but it was on. And the newscaster described Prince Harry as the ascendant of a king. And it stopped me. Because up until that moment, 
As an Afro-Latina woman, I was completely fine with describing myself as the descendant of a slave. That phraseology was one that I inherited, and it sounded powerful to me. It did. It sounded like really deliberate, political, ancestral language. Like, I am insane that I am the descendant of a slave. I'm bringing my ancestors into the room and forcing you to acknowledge them. But that ain't it. And I didn't realize that until I heard ascendant of a king, the juxtaposition of descendant of a slave. Now everything I know about language comes back to me, right? Because <laughs> we know that to ascend means to do what? Rise above. Rise above. And to descend means to? Go down. Right, to be beneath. So Prince Harry is going to rise higher than a king and I will be lower than a slave. That's how I've been languaging myself for 30 years, thinking I'm, you know, doing it right. It was shocking to me that I missed that. How did I get so far away from myself and this story of who I am? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. When you acquire language, when you're this sweet little thing drooling all over yourself, whoever is raising you, when they are trying to teach you language, they don't do it by saying, okay, to hi, pretty, hi. They don't go, okay, toy, toy, T-O-Y, right? They don't do it that way. They don't hand you a dictionary when you're one. Do they? Did anybody have anybody teach them that way? Okay. We all acquired it the same way. They said, pick up your toy, and we didn't know what the hell that meant. <laughs> and then they model it. Toy. Pick up your toy. And your brain goes, aha. So when they say that, she wants me to pick up that shiny thing I've been playing with this whole time. Toy. Pick up your toy. It's mimicry. It's borrowed usage. That's the acquisition of language. Borrowed usage. Now that's fine when you're two. It's not fine now. At some point, I would posit that you have to go back and reclaim language and own it. Until you do that, it's a borrowed thing. And there's danger in that. Particularly for marginalized people, particularly for women. That is dangerous, to borrow the usage of others. So for me, that really began the process of going back and interrogating and re-interrogating language. And I'll tell you what, if you ever want to find out how far away we are from the original intent of a word, just study etymology. English is a bastardized language. We borrow from languages that are older, but we weren't deliberate enough. It's this patchwork quilt. An agenda was undergirding all of it. So, for example, the danger of borrowed usage. It seems really like pedestrian on the surface. What does the word nice mean? Hmm? Good. And? Hmm? 
pleasant. How do you know? A dictionary told me. Did it? And I chose to believe what it was. You sure a dictionary told you? No, a teacher. Because here's the thing. This is how I know what nice, how it's defined. Be nice. Be nice. That was bad what you did. Be nice. Or, did you do something with your hair? That is nice. Or, those shoes are nice. I like those. Where'd you get those from? And the usage tells you it's something pleasant or good or kind or polite. And we carry that usage forward, and then other people inherit that same use. In the dictionary, nice, you will find a capital letter L in parentheses, right? Because Latin parented it. And then you find next to that, nascience. No science. No knowledge. Nice means ignorant and wanton. It's in bold letters in the dictionary. Ignorant and wanton. How did we get here then? Where it means polite and kind and pleasant. Because someone misused the word. And they went unchallenged. And then we inherited that use and carried it forward. That's dangerous. And that's one of the, the, like, <laughs> the more like, congenial examples, truly. So I'm interrogating all of this. Descendant of slave, ascendant of king. I already know. Descendant, ascendant. To rise above, to be beneath. Slave. We think in pictures, right? Language creates a picture in your head. You string those pictures together, and they form your reality, and then you concede to that reality. So that's why if I say picture a, a pink Cadillac on a black driveway, you don't picture the letters A-P-I-N-K-C-A-D-I-L-L-A-C on a B-L-A-C-K-D-R-I-V-E-W-A-Y. You see a pink car on a black driveway. You think in pictures. So this word slave has a physical description. That physical description was somebody who looked kind of like me, toiling in a field against their will, broken, right? Not belonging to themselves. Etymologically, the word slave comes from the word Slav, capital S-L-A-V. Slav literally means conquered person because Slavic people kept getting into wars with each other. And that word Slav then becomes synonymous with slave, but then in 1619, when the seismic choice is made to import African bodies, and disperse them throughout the new world, that word gets attached to those bodies. Now I know that. It's 2018 and I know that, but when I hear that word slave, the physical description is still a black body in a field. Still. Even though intellectually I know better, that word still conjures that image for me. I had to really 
become willful about how I was going to be the arbiter of language and information. And I was uncomfortable with thinking that I knew what I was saying. I wanted to know that I knew what I was saying. Now, there are all kinds of words that we mess up and we use them interchangeably and they really don't have anything to do with each other. One of the examples that helped me in parenting was the difference and the distance between the word decide and the word choose. Now again, let's just use what we already know. Latin again. C-I-D-E at the end of a word. Other examples. What other words? Suicide. Suicide. And? Mm-hmm. And? Suicide. Femicide. And? Homicide. And? Genocide. And? What's happening? <laughs> In all these instances, what's happening? Something's being killed off. That's what it literally means, okay? So C-I-D-E, Latin suffix, C-I-D-E at the end of a word. Something is being killed off. Now decide and choose. The simplest explanation is, if I decide to stand right here, In my decision, I've killed off any opportunity to stand anywhere else. This is it, whether it works out or not. If I choose to stand here and it doesn't work out, I can move. Different. For my children, <laughs> this was a quintessential part of their upbringing. <laughs> the question, when you have three teenagers in your house, listen. They would say something happened, or they did something. And I would say, was that a decision or a choice? It, 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 doesn't, it, it doesn't make decide a nefarious word, but it is a constrictive one, right? Sometimes it's appropriate to decide. And other times it's appropriate to choose. For teenagers, it's important that they understand you want to leave as much room as possible. Give yourself as much latitude and longitude as possible. You don't know everything. You might have miscalculated. Make more choices than you do decisions. That was really important for me and important to be able to give them that distinction because it also gives them greater ownership of themselves and how they govern their behaviors and trying to make sure that their behaviors give them, in fact, as much room as possible, right? So that they don't unintentionally imprison themselves, right? Because that happens all the time. One of the things for me that was pretty life-changing, I remember teaching a workshop at the Denver Country Club. Don't ask, I don't know how I got there. <laughs> I don't know. I did not belong there. And, uh, and, and the room was an even split. People of color, white folks, even split. Pretty even generationally. And we're having this conversation 
And people keep, you know, well, you know, you need the freedom to, you know, freedom to do this. And freedom is really important. And freedom and freedom and freedom and freedom and freedom. I'm like, okay, what, let's just, what are we talking about? When you invoke that word, what are you saying? What do you intend me to know? So then the answer started coming. Well, the, the, <laughs> Black people in the room were saying things like, you know, freedom, man, it's, it's, it's you know, free from oppression, it's freedom from, from, from strife, from tyranny, freedom from, from slavery, freedom from, from imprisonment, freedom from racism, freedom. And then the white people in the room were saying, you know, freedom is it's the freedom to, to be fully expressed. It's the freedom to, to know who you are. It's the freedom to, to speak the way you want to speak. It's the, you hear it? Yep. Yeah. Freedom from, freedom to. That was seismic for me. That the people of color in the room could not even discuss that concept without bringing in everything that corrodes it. It couldn't even talk about it without inserting all of the things that interrupt the concept. And then people with greater privilege in the room were saying, it's the freedom too. And everything got lighter, <laughs> right? More daylight in freedom to versus freedom from. So I felt like I needed to do an etymological chart, which is crazy for the word freedom. It's like a dissertation. I'll give you the cheat sheet though. Freedom and liberty are distant cousins, very distant. One is from without and one is from within. Liberty is restricted or constricted with tangible barrier. It's barbed wire that restricts liberty. Handcuffs restrict liberty. Chains restrict liberty. A cell block constricts liberty. It, it's removing your ability to move the way you would want to move. It's external, from without. Freedom is different. Freedom is from within. It's literally encoded in your DNA. You have it when you arrive. Can't be taken from you. That was really important for me because in an African-American context, we misuse the shit out of that word. And it's crazy because it's the word most invoked in that same community. It's in every song in the civil rights movement. In fact, the people who precede me can't even discuss the civil rights movement without talking about how they were fighting for their freedom. And with all due respect, that's bullshit. No, you weren't. That's not what you were fighting for. You were fighting for your liberty, though. And you were asking for accommodations. Let's not confuse these concepts. That's just not okay with me. When you are saying, I want the right to sit in the front of the bus, that's accommodations. When you say, I want the right to walk into the front door of the Walgreens or the Woolworths, not the back door, that is accommodation. 
It has nothing to do with freedom. Nothing. That concept is too big to misappropriate, in my opinion. And maybe the reason why it's been so elusive is because we don't know what we're talking about. Freedom and liberty don't have anything to do with each other. Here's how you know. You could find free folks on plantations. Free folks on slave ships. You can find free folks in prison. Which brings you to another comparison. Two other words that are used interchangeably and they are not the same. Inmate versus prisoner. Not the same thing. In the United States, I don't know what happens here. I'm sorry, I apologize for my ignorance. But in the United States, the prison industrial complex is big business. Prison is big business. Okay. Now let me tell you about the schizophrenia that results from that. Prison is big business. That is an out loud endeavor. And then politicians talk about the war on crime. Uh-uh. Doesn't work. If prison is big business, if it is an investment that you have privatized, then you have to also invest in crime. How else are you going to feed that industry? I'm just saying, that's the math to me. If you cure crime, there's nothing to feed the business model. The business model needs criminals. Does it not? Okay, so you don't have a war on crime in prison industrial complex at the same time. No damn way. Doesn't make sense. There's dissonance in that languaging, and people don't catch it. When they talk about how many inmates the prison can hold, that is very deliberate language. Prisoner versus inmate. An inmate is a person who concedes to your ideas about them. I belong here. You're right about me. You got me. I'm not going to cause you any trouble. I'm going to be right here. That's an inmate. A prisoner wakes up every morning and is conspiring about his liberty. Knows that they don't belong there. You can't have prisons with prisoners. You got to have inmates. Again, mathematically, 50 guards, 500 prisoners, that don't work. Prison is done by lunchtime. You have to have inmates. You have to have people who have acquiesced to the idea of being conquered for it to work. Slavery as an institution needed the same thing. It required the exact same thing. You had to have people wake up every morning and re-enroll in that institution. You couldn't have enslaved people going to bed at night and thinking about cutting your throat. You have to make a slave. They have to be too terrified of you to even consider running. They got to tell on the person who's thinking about running. They have to coin terms to call them crazy if they run too frequently. You know that happened. In, this, in slavery, a man named Samuel Cartwright coined the term drapedomania. Have you ever heard of it? No. Look it up. You shouldn't take anything I'm saying at my word anyway. You should be looking all this shit up. 
Drapedomania, okay, the man's name was Samuel Cartwright, and here's what he said. Because it was a funny thing that kept happening on plantations, enslaved people kept running away. And he decided that that was a disorder. There's something mentally wrong with them. Drapedomania. And you will find in text, slave owners' journals where they said, caught Jim again, he's got a bad case of the drapes. Oh. He keeps running away. This was actually regarded as a mental illness. They would isolate the slave that had drapedomania so that the others wouldn't catch it. The inclination to be liberated was regarded as mental illness. Probably still is today. Really. There's got to be at least one person in each one of your lives that thinks you're insane for the work that you're doing. Uh, <laughs> at least, well, what are you talking Why are you doing this? Why are you so interested in, in violence against women? Right? It's very interesting. Drapedomania. It literally was a mental illness, a, a diagnosis of mental illness yeah. during child slavery. Words are so important. And what we know from these examples, nice, freedom, liberty, prisoner, inmate, is that you really do have to make a distinction between definition and meaning. They're not the same thing. At all, at all, at all. Etymology teaches you that in stunning fashion, okay? Fundamentally, definition is a commentary on meaning. So all of those words that you popcorned out when I said, what does nice mean, okay? That was a definition. The meaning was really different, wasn't it? Definition is a commentary on meaning. That's seismic, because when you think about it, think about you, your life, the sum total of all your moving parts, every single second of every single day that constructed you and allows you to be right here, right now. That is your meaning. Now think about how you've been defined. Does it sum it up well? Does it tell the whole story, or is it this big? Right? Definitions are limited and they're often wrong. They are incorrect. They certainly cannot tell the full story of who you are and your becoming and your trajectory and where you have yet to go, who you have yet to be. Right? It's very difficult to be a concept and have to negotiate and fit into construct language. The word conception, you are a concept, you are your parents' best idea. And as a concept, the moment that you arrive, you inherit construct. And that construct is supposed to tell the story of you. And it almost never does. It's very limited and limiting. For those of us who recognize it, 
and we can't really figure out how to play nice in that tiny box, we are poorly behaved, mentally ill, problematic, violent, dangerous, maladjusted, rebellious, because the construct doesn't work. That's right. Construct doesn't work for you. It's too small, and you know it, and you're naming it. And any time, if you think about it in the natural world, the rainforest is the concept. If it's cleared to make room for a nightclub, that's the construct. You got to kill stuff to do it. The clearing is violent in order for the construct to exist. The rainforest has to contort, bend, shift, be shaved down, minimize, isolate, right? It's no different for us and our personhood. So I use language as a means to liberate myself. I'm already free. But I use language as a means to liberate myself and others. Some of the words that we use in activism, and look, I, you know, I might say some stuff that interrupts some stuff for you, and that's okay. Because I also believe in the reclamation of words. And I believe that you have the opportunity and you have permission to take a word that had the original intent of maiming you and turning it into a weapon of your own. Okay, we do that all the time. I got, I, I have so many friends that, that use the word bitch to mean something powerful, <laughs> you know? Something completely unfuckwittable, you know what I'm saying? They do, because they're like, oh, because it just seems like bitch got attached to the bodies of women who just kind of weren't going along very well. They didn't say yes often enough, you know? Well, I don't feel like saying yes either. Bitch works for me. Right? And I have, I have those people in my life. So, so reclamation is always possible when we're having these conversations. But you have to know what you're reclaiming and why you're reclaiming it. Again, it's just about being aware and being awake and being deliberate. Right? So now let's talk about the Bible. God help us all. <laughs> okay. Two quotes. Both from Exodus. The first, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or slaves, or ox, or donkey, or anything belonging to your neighbor. What do you notice? Take a minute. What do you notice? Ownership. Ownership. Say more. You're absolutely right. Say more. Look at the hierarchy. You shall not covet your neighbor's House. Okay. And then, don't cover his wife. Don't cover his wife. Or, or his slaves. Mm -hmm. Or ox or donkey or anything belonging to your neighbor. Property. There's a hierarchy here. The wife is more valuable than slaves or beasts and other property perhaps, but she is property. They are owned. And while they, you know, while wives may be the first and the choicest possession, they are still just that. 
possession. Okay, now that's the Bible. The second quote, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So at this time, after six years, male slaves would be set free. That was the standard, okay? After six years, male slaves would be set free. However, any wives or children he might have during the time of his enslavement were to remain bound to their masters, okay? So not only does she remain enslaved for life, but she starts out effectively a slave to her father, a piece of property to be bought and sold. Belongs to her father, belongs to her husband, property. Object. The objectification of women is as old as Methuselah. It's old. It is old. It is an inheritance. It's the context into which we were born. Woman as object, as property, as a thing to be commodified. Waves is produced in Vancouver, Canada by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Mixcloud, and our website, rapereliefshelter.bc.ca. What you're hearing is our theme song. It's called Sisterhood, and it's created by Music Liberatory. Music Liberatory.